0: If you're new with us, last Sunday we started a new series um, in the life of David. So for the next several weeks, we're going to be exploring the life of David. And and this morning we come to probably one of the most familiar stories in the entire Bible. And and there's a challenge that comes with a story like this one, right? Um, Familiarity can breed contempt. We can just be inoculated to this story because we're so familiar with it. if your childhood was anything like mine, I grew up in the church. We sang songs about David and Goliath, right? One, only a boy named David. Y'all remember that one? No, just me? Okay. Yeah, we, we sang songs about this one. I grew up in a, in a pretty, pretty uh, religiously conservative home, and we weren't allowed to do Halloween. Um, but when our church did a, a Christian subcultural version of trick-or-treating called a fall festival, we could do that. Um, as long as we didn't like, dress up like witches or vampires. So I dressed up like David. My mom made me a David costume, complete with a leather sling um, that I held on to long after the fall festival and tried to learn how to sling a rock with. So we're, we're very familiar with this. Even if you're not a religious person, I don't know how, you know, maybe you stumbled in this morning, Maybe you're not acquainted with the Bible. You probably know this story, or at least some version of it. We, we use David and Goliath language anytime we're referring to an underdog situation, right? When a, when a weaker opponent faces a much bigger, better adversary, it, it's a David versus Goliath scenario. A couple years ago in the NCAA tournament, number 16 seed, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, the Retrievers took down number one seed, Virginia, in the first round of the tournament. And, and we, we all refer to this as David conquering Goliath, right? This story has become a metaphor for improbable victories. But the story of David is, is much more than a metaphor, the stories of the Old Testament are more than Aesop's fables on steroids. Sometimes we can kind of treat them that way, but they're more than these moral metaphors. We need to remember as we dive into this story this morning that what's being told is, is historical narrative. It's, it's being presented to us as a, a real event in history that it's not first a metaphor for an impossible situation or an unlikely victory over a dominant foe. It's presented to us as non-fiction. It's a story that took place in the Valley of Elah between two rival armies, Israel and Philistine. So we need to be careful. One pastor warns, he says, "We we can make major errors by not stressing the proper accent Of a biblical narrative. If we don't listen to this text, then we'll end up bringing in all the junk about being courageous in the face of your Goliaths. We must protect ourselves from such deafness to the text. Now, maybe you've heard it taught that way before. I certainly have. And there's not without, that's not without merit, right? There's, there's merit to that sort of an approach to this story. But I think, I think the warning here is valid. We, we need to be careful as we dive into the story this morning. First Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul says that the events of the Old Testament were written down for our instruction. We have much to learn from this story, but we need to make sure that we're learning the right things from this story. So the question we need to be asking is, what is that lesson? We we saw last week as we dove into this series that God's choice of David was a decision to use an ordinary person. The theme from last week was that God uses ordinary people in ordinary places who live with gospel intentionality. That's, That's how God works in the world. The key verse from last week was chapter 16, verse 7, which says, God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but, but the Lord looks at the heart. And immediately, as we come into chapter 17, that reality is put on display for us in the story of David and Goliath. As we enter into chapter 17, Goliath is described in great detail. The narrator goes on, verse after verse, describing how impressive Goliath was by the looks of things. He's nine and a half feet tall. He towers over everyone, and especially little teenage Justin Bieber lookalike David. (laughs) Goliath is a veteran warrior. He's won countless victories for the Philistines. He is a champion. His spear, we're told, is the size of a weaver's beam. I had to look up what that is. It's a big beam. (laughs) He wears 125 pounds of armor. He's an absolute monster. And David, on the other hand, is this shrimpy little shepherd boy with a sling. Right? If you're looking at outward appearances, David is ridiculously overmatched. I mean, this is a pathetic display. And we need to remember that God sees not as man sees. And God works not as man works. He delivers not in the strength of mighty men, but by his power. The army of Israel was caught up in the way that things looked. They were were stuck on the outward appearance of things. Earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, when King Saul is is selected as king, he's described as an impressive Israelite who stood a head taller than anyone else. Israel's playing the game the world's way. And so they go, we we need the, the biggest, most impressive dude we can find. And that worked for a little while until Goliath showed up. And suddenly, against this bigger, badder, taller enemy, Saul is not so impressive anymore. And the people aren't inspired anymore. And, and, and I think one of the clear lessons from this story that, that God's trying to teach us is that if you're trusting in the wrong source, if you're putting your hope in the wrong thing, in external appearances— in outward impressiveness, whether that's the size of your bank account or the family you were born in or your business savvy or intelligence, your popularity or your youthfulness or your good looks or cleverness or whatever it is that you might be tempted to trust in, you need to know that eventually that is going to fail you the way that Saul failed Israel. What then? When Goliath's shadow dominated the valley of Elah, Israel's confidence evaporated. They were overcome with fear. And they couldn't imagine the possibility of defeating the giant. It seemed like this impossible victory because, in their own strength, it was. They were caught up in the outward appearance of things. They had totally forgotten about the God who parts waters. About the God who makes the sun to stand still. Their eyes were looking to Saul, not Yahweh. Their faith was in the wrong source. And see, what distinguishes David in this story is not the proficiency with which he uses a sling. It's where his eyes were looking. It's where his heart was resting. See, this story is about God's greatness in spite of human weakness. That's what this story is about. Eugene Peterson says, David entered the valley of Elah with a God-dominated, not a Goliath-dominated imagination. The Christian life is largely determined by the imagination. Who do you imagine God to be? What sort of God is he? See, what we need more than anything is a God-dominated imagination. We need God-centered thoughts so that we live God-centered lives. A.W. Tozer said it this way, he said, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. This, by the way, is the reason why it's so important to gather every week for worship. Because when we come together, worship reorients us back to the reality of who God is. It reframes our view of the world. We sing and we marvel at the greatness and the glory of God so that we live with an expanded imagination of his grace and his goodness in our everyday lives. That's what we need. And so I want us this morning to notice what it was that fueled David's God-dominated imagination. How did David live with this God-dominated imagination. What we'll see is that he was shaped by listening, by remembering, and by loving. David held to a deeper voice, a truer hope, and a greater zeal than the voices, hopes, and ambitions of those around him. I want to unpack these one at a time. Let's first notice the deeper voice that David was listening to. Verse 8, let's pick up. It says, Goliath stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, Why do you come out to line up in a battle formation? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you'll be our servants. And then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Goliath was not only a heavyweight champion, he was skilled in the ancient art of trash talking. I mean, this dude was a good trash talker. Can't you imagine his James Earl Jones-like voice thundering across the valley, openly mocking the army of Israel and mocking Israel's God? His voice was a voice of terror. It invoked fear. And everyone, including Israel's King Saul, is totally overwhelmed by this voice, totally intimidated by this voice. It's a voice of fear. That's not the only voice in this story. There's also the voice of Eliab, David's older brother. As we read along in the story, and I'll just summarize for the sake of time this morning, David arrives to the battlefront with, with bread and cheese for, the, for, for his brothers and for the battalion leaders and he begins to ask questions about how the battle is going. And while he's asking questions about how the battle is going, suddenly, as, as he's speaking with them, we're told that Goliath, the Philistine, came forward and, and he, he issued his same threats, challenging the Israeli army to, to fight to send a champion out to battle and contend with him. And it says, everybody was terrified. In verse 26, David spoke to the men who were standing with him, and he says, what will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So David's going, hey, why isn't somebody fighting this guy? And then here's his older brother, Eliab. Why did you come down here, he asked. Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. Iliab is a voice of discouragement and envy. Who do you think you are, little brother? Go home to your measly few sheep. Quit pretending like you're somebody. Your motives here are selfish. Eliab is perhaps still sore from David being anointed instead of him or maybe just annoyed by a blabbering little brother but either way, he's had enough of David's voice running his little mouth and so he says, get out of here, little brother. And sometimes it's true that the loudest voices of discouragement in our lives come from those closest to us. But There's another voice. Not only is there the voice of Goliath and the voice of Eliab, there's the voice of Saul. When David goes to the king and says, Hey, I'll fight, Saul's response is basically, You can't fight. He's a nine foot veteran warrior. You're still dealing with acne, David. You're just a little shepherd boy. You be optimistic, I'll be realistic. Saul is the voice of pragmatism. His vision vision of the world is shaped by what could work, not the God who works. And so collectively, David has every reason to be discouraged and to cower away like the rest of Israel's army. Eliab is saying, David, you're a punk. Saul is saying, David, you're inexperienced. Goliath is saying, David, you're puny. But God had said of David, David, you're mine. David was Yahweh's anointed king. He was God's chosen one. And the Spirit of God had come upon David. See, David was rooted in what God had said of him. And amidst all of the voices of fear and failure, David found himself in God's word. As I was thinking about this this week, I was reminded of Psalm 1, which says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the advice of the wicked or stands in the pathway of sinners or sits in the company of mockers. That's Saul and Eliab and Goliath. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. This one, this one who meditates on Torah, who knows the word of God, who's rooted in the voice of God, he is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows and watches over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked leads to ruin. David's life was like that tree rooted beside streams of living water. So he wasn't blown over by the voices of opposition and discouragement. Amidst all the clamoring voices that would provoke him to fear and doubt, he located the voice of truth. What about you? What voice is dominating your life at this moment? There is a deeper voice that still speaks And cuts through the cacophony of worldly advice and discouragement and fear. Are you listening? Or are you letting the voices of fear and discouragement and pragmatism dominate your heart? David's imagination was was fueled by a deeper voice, he was also fueled by a truer hope. Pick up with me in verse 33. This is David talking with Saul about going to the battle. Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. And he's been a warrior since he was young. David, he's been fighting longer than you've been alive. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it. I struck it down and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur and strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine." David does something here that Pastor John Piper refers to as faith in future grace. It's this idea that past faithfulness, the past faithfulness of God is the fuel for trusting him moving forward. Simply put, that God has been faithful and therefore God will be faithful. David's faith is sustained in the present as he remembers Yahweh's provision in the past. And so as he looks back and he remembers over and over again how God has been faithful, he says, man, I have the faith to trust that he'll be faithful yet again. Church, this is why remembering and rehearsing God's faithfulness is a key element to our faith. You cannot live faithfully for God without remembering the faithfulness of God. Our faith is a remembering faith. It's a rehearsing and a retelling faith. I think I may have shared this before, but naively, early in my pastoral ministry, I decided to preach through the book of Deuteronomy. I won't do that to you yet. And about halfway through that series, I realized that it was growing increasingly difficult to preach the same sermon over and over again because the entire book of Deuteronomy is God saying to the people, remember, don't forget, you're going to get into the land of Canaan and it's going to be milk and honey and houses you didn't build and wells you didn't dig and it's going to be awesome and you're going to forget me. You're going to lose sight of me and you're going to live in the lavishness of the promised land. Don't forget don't forget how faithful I've been. Don't forget everything I've done for you. Don't forget forget just how good I've been to you. Remember, remember, remember. In fact, God set up these permanent festivals for the people of God to, to, to practice and live into year after year after year. Three times, the people of God were to pilgrimage to Jerusalem and to celebrate the festivals. Why? Because they were were set up to help the people of God remember the faithfulness of God. That was the whole point of the festival. Why? Because as they remembered God's faithfulness in the past, they would trust in him in the present and look to him in the future. Remembering fuels our faith. David actually models this for us later in Psalm 103 as he begins to recount the blessings of the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives your iniquity and heals your diseases and redeems you from the pit and crowns you with love and mercy and satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And he goes on and on and on, remembering and rehearsing The goodness and the faithfulness of God. David is rehearsing God's past faithfulness so that he'll trust in his present faithfulness. We notice in the story that David's confidence here is not in his ability. It could read like that if you only read verses 34 through 36, but the key is verse 37. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear Will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine David's confidence was in God This this is not a story about David's swagger It's a story about God's faithfulness and strength We need to get this clear Biblical courage is not grit It's not self-esteem It's not believing in yourself. Biblical courage is trusting in the Lord in the face of super intimidating circumstances. It's about having the kind of love that conquers even our greatest fears. This is the last thing I want us to notice. David's imagination was not only fueled by a deeper voice and a truer hope, it was fueled by this loving zeal for God. I think there's a temptation to read this story and to imagine that David is this fearless warrior that went to the battlefield and his heart rate didn't even go up. To think that David's just that dude. He's him, right? Isn't that how we say it, Jude? He's him. I think that would be a misreading of this story. It's not that David felt no fear. It's that his love For God ran deeper than his fears. The key word in the entire story of David and Goliath is is this word defy. In the Hebrew, it's harap, which means to deride or mock or taunt. Goliath is repeatedly said to have defied Israel and its God. I defy the ranks of Israel, verse 10. He comes to defy Israel, verse 25. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Verse 26. He has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 36. It's it's an emphatic point that the narrator is making. Goliath has defied the name of the living God. David's driving concern in the entire chapter is the honor of Yahweh's name. David is concerned with with God's reputation, God's glory. He's driven by a a passion to honor the Lord. Rachel read it for us earlier, but verse 45, David says to Goliath, you come at me with sword and spear and javelin. I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies. He goes on and he says, all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. Can you hear the driving concern of David's life? Goliath's mockery of Yahweh angered David because he loved the Lord. And he was led to fight because he had a zeal for the glory of the Lord. Listen to me. You cannot live the Christian life By a sense of duty alone. That will not sustain you. Duty by itself is not enough. The Christian life must be lived by love. Obedience and courage are fueled by zealous love. Now here's the critical question. Where does that kind of zealous love come from? Right? Isn't that the key question? Okay, Andy, I hear what you're saying. I got to live by zealous love. I don't feel that. How do we experience the kind of love that overcomes our fears and gives us kingdom advancing courage? I think it comes from properly locating ourselves in this story. Before we can effectively have a zeal like David's, we need to see that in this narrative, we're not him. Isn't that what we want to do? We want to make ourselves David. We're not David. We're the cowering Israelites hiding behind the hill, hoping for a miracle. And here's the good news of this story. David's victory counts for them. One man wins the victory for an entire army of people. And then they all share in the plunder together. Right? And see, that's the story of the gospel. Jesus is the greater King David. He's our champion. See, Jesus didn't just risk his life, he gave his life to slay the giant. Don't you see it? Jesus, like David, lived his entire life trusting in the voice of the Father, hoping in the faithfulness of the Father, until he zealously went to the cross, his battlefield, to face a more formidable foe than even Goliath. Jesus faced sin and death for us. And just like the Israelites who share in the spoils of David's victory, by faith we share in Christ's victory. Sin has been defeated, church. Death has no power over us. Jesus has conquered the greater Goliath for us. And perhaps the most ironic and comical moment of this entire story is in verse 52. I just love it. you got to imagine this. you got to try to imagine. You need God-dominated imagination. God, help us see the humor here in verse 52, where it says that after David cut off Goliath's head, the men of Israel and Judah rallied. Suddenly they have, they have courage. And they begin shouting their battle cry and chase the Philistines. What warriors, right? From cowering to pursuing. But see, now they have zeal. Their zeal came from David's defeat of Goliath. In church, our zeal comes from Jesus' defeat of sin and death. By faith in Christ, we stand in a place of victory. We don't fight for the victory. We have it in Jesus' name. He's already defeated the giant for us. And it's in awareness of this awesome reality that we live each day for God. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says, For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Paul says we're compelled by love. And what motivates us to live for Jesus is his death and resurrection for us. It's the gospel that gives us zealous love. And by listening to his voice and by trusting in his provision of the Holy Spirit, we're empowered to begin to live our lives zealously. We can, by faith, actually live for God's glory. Through the Holy Spirit, you're no longer an impotent, cowering Israelite. You're a spirit-anointed warrior of the living God. God can use us, church, just the way he used little old slingshot David. Not because we're great, but because he's great. Which means that what we need more than anything is a Jesus-dominated imagination. And so we'll end with a quote from the great Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, who says this, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love. And repose in his almighty arms. Cry after divine knowledge and lift up your voice for understanding. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so that there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. For every one look itself. Take 10 looks at Christ. Let's pray together. God, I'm reminded of a quote by C.S. Lewis that essentially says that our problem is not that our desires are too strong, that they're too weak, And God, I think the same thing could be said of our imaginations. Forgive us for having weak imaginations when it comes to a consideration of how good and glorious and gracious and great you are. Expand our minds. Take us to new horizons to see your glory. Help us to revel in it. Because the most important thing about us is what comes into our minds when we think about you. Forgive us for having a small vision of you. Expand it, God, so that we might actually live this life of faith, not trusting in ourselves, not trying to grit our teeth and do it in our own strength, not even out of a sense of duty, but out of zealous love, Because we've been so loved by Jesus and we marvel and revel at who he is. Spirit, we can't accomplish these things on our own. So we pray that you would come and do your work in our hearts and minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.